0: Hey, folks, I'm John Moore, a marketer and podcaster at Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation. Our Digital Nation is a Salesforce podcast, but the views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Salesforce. Today's episode is part of a series on equity-centered digital transformation in government, and our guest is Kenneth Bailey, former EEO officer and DEIA chief for the U.S. Department of Labor Office of Inspector General. We were fortunate to get the opportunity to capture this episode before Kenneth's departure, but given that this was recorded during his active tenure, we have to note that Kenneth's views are his own and do not reflect those of the Department of Labor Office of Inspector General. The vision of the Department of Labor Office of Inspector General is to enhance... Through their oversight, the Department of Labor's ability to address emerging workforce challenges and foster a thriving work environment that values employees as their greatest asset. And Kenneth, or Kenny, as he prefers to be called, has been committed to a similar mission for most of his career. Kenny began his federal civil career in 2006 with the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, after completing 23 years of military service in the U.S. Army, which is where he started his journey as a diversity practitioner, Kinney has shaped EEO policy, provided guidance to executive leaders, and developed diagnostic tools that are helping federal agencies across the government do a more effective job of measuring their diversity and inclusion, equal employment opportunity, and affirmative employment initiatives. So, who better to talk to? As we explore the intersection of government, technology, and equity centered design, and consider what a truly digital nation could look like for all of us. Kenny, let's start with some baselining. We're covering a multifaceted topic here, and we want to ensure that all participants in this conversation are starting on the same page. So, DEI, diversity equity, inclusion. In some instances, is treated as an aggregate practice, while in other instances, the acronym represents a collection of complementary ideals that inform a perspective or strategy. And as a result, DEI or any one of the terms that make up the acronym are used variably and there are nuanced perspectives on the significance of these terms. So let's start with breaking down and defining DEI from your perspective and your experience, I would love to hear what the words diversity, equity, and inclusion really mean. Thank you, John, for that question. And thank you for inviting me to participate in
1: the session today. Actually, when I think of diversity, I think of everything different. This is not Webster's dictionary definition, but this is what I've held principle to as long as I've been a practitioner. Because diversity signifies the difference in everything and everything. There's no thing that is exactly alike. So that goes for demographics of people. That goes for the thought process of people, um, how they think, what they think, what they value. In addition to a variety of other things that some people know from the diversity wheel diversity characteristics that are inherited and some that are adopted. So race, gender, in some cases, you know, disability can be inherited, surely acquired after birth. And then things that we adopt such as our religion, people within particular organizations, the military is one what particular branch of the military one may be in. And the same thing with organizations, right? Whether it's a company or a federal agency, each company and agency has its own unique culture about it that people assimilate to, which is not a very popular word in diversity, equity, and inclusion because assimilation means that you're adopting the practices of that organization. But in some cases, we all work in places where we adopt the values, the ideas, and the beliefs of that organization, but we still should have our own independent values and beliefs as well. What I would say about equity is there's a little chart that's been going around for a while, picture should I say, about equity. And it displays kids on a step stool to look over the fence to see a ball game. However, all of the kids can't see the ball game in one picture because they're all given the exact same school at you know one foot high, but the kid's sizes vary, right? So they all can't see over the fence. So what equity is is saying that not that we treat everybody the same way, right? Giving them all the same foot school at the same measurement, but that. We provide a stool where each kid based on their height will have visibility to look over the fence and see the game. So that's a big difference with equity, especially when people sometimes get it mixed up with equality. And then lastly, with inclusion, what I would say is that equity, diversity, and you can add the other two accessibility and belonging that are common practice now in the acronym and how the acronym continues to grow. I don't think the acronym really needs to grow because I think that diversity, equity, accessibility, and belonging are all elements of inclusion. And if an organization has full inclusion, then they have each of those elements. Now, some would argue and say, well, I can have a homogeneous group, And I would have diversity and equity within there. Yeah, you could do that. And it would be diverse because, again, no two people are the same, um, regardless of whether they're the same race or gender. But in actuality, in order to have full inclusion, you would need to have diversity and race, ethnicity, and gender. So for me to keep adding on to the acronym to go from DEI. DEIA which is used in the federal government now and now people say DEI and belonging is really I think a step beyond what really needs to happen because each one as I
0: mentioned are elements of inclusion. That's incredibly insightful I appreciate you breaking that down and what it sounds to me like is happening is we're starting to see the evolution of these concepts into far more sophisticated levels of thinking. So as you pointed out, various permutations of the term are taking root. And what that means is that we're starting to realize there are far more expansive ways of thinking about this work. And you, having had an extraordinary history and body of work, wherein you've had a direct hand in establishing policy, and setting strategic direction for agencies across the breadth of federal civil service, you had this really incredible journey and perspective of where the practice has been, where it is today, a great perspective of where it may be going in the next several years. What makes this work so important to you and how do your personal experiences shape the way you carry out your current role? I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to influence
1: and develop policies which support a variety of of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives throughout several federal agencies and impact their mission and their employees. The path to my journey actually started very early, even before I was conscious of what direction I would be going. Because as a little kid, I grew up in the 60s during the civil rights era. And during that time, I was constantly glued to the TV with my mom watching the speeches of most especially Martin Luther King, but other leaders in the civil rights movement during that time. And I believe that the seed was planted then as to how the trajectory of how I entered into this field as a practitioner. I went into the military. Uh, spent 23 years in the military, initially uh, infantryman, and then later on in human capital. But that evolved into me transitioning into a full-time diversity and equal opportunity practitioner while in the military, and that led me to my federal career beginning at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, um, next the uh, ICE Immigration Customs and Enforcement. And then uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and now here at the Popular Labor's OIG office. So again, it's been a pleasure for me and an honor for me to have had the opportunity to work doing something that I'm I absolutely love and have been passionate about since a very young age, you know, in my life. The second part of the question is how my experiences shape the way that I carry out my current role is, uh, again, just having a belief that civil rights is a right of everyone and that everyone should be treated with an equal opportunity and have an equal opportunity to succeed in the job that they perform. So that pushes me every day to work with leaders, to find better ways to improve the quality of life of employees here and at the previous agencies that I worked in. That background and passion has led me to participate in, like you said, shaping policy by developing, you know, some very good diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility strategic plans, which has enabled organizations to attract more people of diverse backgrounds, but also enable them to better carry out their mission.
0: So you essentially had a front row seat to this in a number of different ways. And what I find interesting is that we seem to have come to a moment in time where this topic is centered in our national discourse. So much so that right now, there is a standing executive order on advancing racial equality and support for underserved communities through the federal government. There's a pretty bold statement in that executive order. It says, our nation deserves an ambitious whole of government equity agenda that matches the scale of the opportunities and challenges that we face, which resonates with some of what you just shared about everybody having a place at the table and an opportunity (laughs) to leverage their talents, their skills, their abilities. And I'd love to hear how these types of mandates are typically interpreted by public sector executives in your seat. How does an executive order like that land with you? So
1: I would say that, you know, in addition to that executive order, which was one, three, nine, eight, five, um, we also have executive order one, four, zero, three, five, right? Which one, three, nine, eight, five is relative to externally and the engagements that federal agencies have externally and throughout communities. And then one, four, zero, three, five is focused on internal, the workforce. These executive orders come on the heels of executive order one, three, five, eight, three from president Obama's initial executive order requiring federal agencies to develop diversity, equity, inclusion, strategic plans. And under the current administration, the first executive, I think it might've been the actual first executive order that president Biden signed was one, three, nine, eight, five regarding our federal agencies, external engagement with communities, these executive orders, what they have done and how they set with myself and my peers is they have given teeth to the work that we do. Because unlike within the federal government, many of my colleagues work both EEO, uh, equal employment opportunity and diversity, equity, and inclusion with equal employment opportunity. We have a bunch of statutory and regulatory guidance that a federal agencies must be in com- compliance with. And before Dean's executive orders, we really didn't have that in regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion, not internally or externally. So These executive orders have given, I would say, empowerment to practitioners doing the work that we do. And they are very happy and excited for having these executive orders. And you can tell, I can tell, the shift in leadership thinking since these executive orders have been issued. We want to get away from doing the work that we do solely based on compliance right? We want to be doing things because it's the right thing to do. It makes sense. It makes moral sense, but it also makes business sense. And it starts with these executive orders as compliance, right? Just like the civil rights act when the civil rights act was implemented, people had to follow it because that was the civil rights act and it, and it was a law and it, it changed things. But eventually organizations, people got away from I'm doing it just because the civil rights act say I have to, but because it really makes sense. And that's where we are hoping to evolve from, but we have to start from somewhere. And this is where we're starting from. These executive orders, since these executive orders have come out, there has been so much work in advance to looking at both again our internal relationships regarding race equity with the communities as well as internal with our workforce you know a couple of the things that the executive order for advancing race equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government indicated was that we had to conduct equity assessments within the federal agencies so we had to look at what potential barriers was out there, how we can eliminate those barriers. Can we establish new policies that will help improve our engagement with external customers and external communities that we are connected to and that we do our work with. It also required that agencies allocate more federal resources to advance fairness and equity and equal opportunities. And these things, In some cases, without having this directive, it wouldn't have happened. So, again, I say that practitioners in our field, in the public sector, are very happy, overall, very happy with the issuing of these executive orders.
0: So, I love the fact that you called out the significance of this practice moving from what feels like a box checking exercise to pursuing this because it's not just morally right, but it's also a really good business imperative. It just makes sense. If you want to build a robust, a healthy, a thriving organization, then diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, all of those things have to be built into the business strategy, the business growth strategy. And so, of course, this is a technology podcast, so I want to talk a little bit about how technology plays into all of this. Up to Mm -hmm. this point, what has been your perspective on the potential to leverage technology, data, and all of the systems attached to that, that it powers, to help level the playing field? Well, the most significant way, I think,
1: is technology is allowing organizations to have greater reach to diverse candidates for employment and that can assist with, again, balancing the scales regarding workforce demographic in any specific organization. And as you have more diverse candidates or more diverse people who work for your organization, the greater the innovation will be because of the diversity of thought that you have acquired from the talent that you've employed. I would say also that we've seen how Social media has assisted us or has assisted the movement of social justice and civil rights and its reach with all of the different people and places that can be touched through, you know, social media. I would say that what I'm cautious about in regards to the technology space is artificial intelligence. Um, there was an article in Forbes which talks about how much AI is being used, you know, from, you know, self driving cars and robots, even with aviation. And there can be problems that arise from that based on how the systems are developed, where there can be unconscious biases within those systems and how they're built. I would say that for the most part, Of course, there are tremendous gains regarding technology and how it can be leveraged in this space, but that is one important area in which we really need to pay attention to and how that impacts, again, people who are typically underrepresented within our society. And decisions are made from artificial intelligence applied to people across the board.
0: That is an incredibly mindful and thoughtful approach to the way that technology can be leveraged because there are so many leading edge technologies that people get excited about. But to your point, we have to really think through the way these technologies are empowered to serve us in the best ways possible. And this is a really good segue into what I was curious about asking really earlier on in the conversation, but I think this might be a good time for us to broach is thinking about the next three to five years, there are a lot of exciting opportunities that lie ahead of us, but there are also some potential roadblocks and obstacles. And I'd love to hear from your perspective what some of those might be and how we could best prepare to circumvent or overcome some of those potential obstacles.
1: So this is a question that really I'm dealing with every day in this space as a practitioner, right? Overcoming obstacles to progress. And what I would share in regards to that question is that one of the biggest obstacles is that people don't want to change. And that's being quite frank in some cases. And that's not the case for all. Change is hard for people who have been doing what they do, you know, whether they've lived life for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60, or however long, they have developed a pattern of behavior over the course of that lifespan. And then all of a sudden, when they join the workforce or, you know, when they join a different workforce, they're being told that this has to be a value to where before, it may not have been a value to them that work with people of diverse backgrounds and work with people of diverse races and genders. One example I can say, I'm well, one of the agencies that I was at. We had a challenge meeting, you know, the a requirement for the federal government to look like what the workforce looks like in a nation as a whole. So there's 20% whites. In the private sector, there should be 20% in the federal government, 15% Asian Americans and so forth and so forth. Right. So we weren't meeting that bar for many of the underrepresented groups. But one of the things that I kept hearing, cause it was a STEM agency was there are not mm-hmm. enough candidates out there. There are not enough people in the pool for us to hire and bring on. Well, the way to dispel that myth was to do a thorough analysis of our applicant flow data, the people who apply for our jobs. And in doing that analysis, I was able to determine that we've had plenty of people of underrepresented groups apply for jobs. However, they weren't getting selected. So it wasn't a shortage of the pool. It was a behavioral challenge with managers typically hiring people who look like them. Showing people, painting the true and accurate picture is one of the ways to overcome the behavioral challenge, which I actually think is the biggest challenge to advancing in the space of BEIA. One of the other challenges is that many times our offices are not properly resourced, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough logistical or fiscal resources to do the things that we need to do in order to be successful. And you will know that in uh, the private sector, DEI officers really change organizations quite frequently because they often go to places where they find that they aren't resourced well enough to do the job that they need to do to support the company that hired them
0: to do the job. For executive leaders like yourself that may be just starting the work of building a culture of inclusion, or even if they've been in this for a while and they're a seasoned practitioner, but nonetheless want to affect change in a really big way and really want to make their mark, what guidance would you give to those people?
1: The first is that I would say they must ensure that diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, belonging is actually tied into the operational or business mission of the agency or the company, right? Because if it's not, people aren't gonna listen to you. They don't have time for you because they have an operational or business imperative function. The only way to get them to listen to you is to help them understand how focusing also on DEIA will help improve their ability to do their operational and their business mission. And then I would advise also that leaders reflect on my response to the question of how do you measure impact in your role by saying, selecting and analyzing the appropriate data points is very important. I heard it somewhere before, that which doesn't get measured doesn't get done or that which gets measured gets done. So it's important to show leaders the data so that they can make the best decision. And in keeping good metrics and presenting it to leaders, it will also allow you to show the value of you as a practitioner and the work that you do.
0: Kenny, thank you so much for your time today. really, truly appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure, John, and an honor. Thank you. That was Kenneth Bailey former Department of Labor Office of the Inspector General, EEO Officer, and DEIA Chief, and current CEO of ASB Solutions. To learn more about Salesforce's ongoing commitment to our core value of equality, visit equality.com. And to learn about other incredible trailblazers that are harnessing technology to bring about change in the world, visit salesforce.com forward slash public sector, follow us on Twitter at salesforcegov, And join the discussion on LinkedIn at Salesforce for Government. Thanks for listening today. If you want more episodes like this, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Moore from Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation.